0: Hi, I'm John Allen, pastor here at Risen Church. We pray this sermon helps you fall deeper in love with Jesus, his people, and his purpose in the earth. And so if you're in Virginia Beach or the Hampton Roads area, we would love to have you join with us in person at one of our services this coming Sunday. Uh, At Risen, we don't just have a seat for you, we have a space for you. And so I pray this teaching blesses you and grows you in your love for Jesus Christ. We're going to be in Psalm 73. We're going to do, do a deep dive in it so you can open your Bibles there. As you're turning, there's a phrase I want you to get used to saying, which is, There is a psalm for that. Can I, somebody say, there's a, there's a psalm for that? There is a psalm for that. I was a math teacher in a former life, so I talk to my people. Uh, and basically, what, what I mean by there's a psalm for that is wherever you find your heart to be, somebody has expressed that heart in a way that is acceptable before God no matter how ugly you think that heart is if you're mad at God frustrated feel like you're getting the short end of the stick if you're if you're bored if you're if you're wanting to delight in God and praise God no matter where your heart is somebody's heart has been there and they've written a song also known as a psalm and they've sung it for thousands of years and you have permission to relate to God in that way and he has an amazing way of using that so yes there is a psalm for that okay the psalm for that this morning has to do with our hearts uh Tending to want to evaluate reality for ourselves, and we can get discombobulated. We can get it wrong, and he's going to take us through his journey of being wrong about some things and then seeing God as good on the other side. Uh, I don't know if y'all grew up watching television. I did, okay? And uh, I used to love the scenes of, like, flashbacks. You know, whether it was Hey Arnold back in the day, he'd have a flashback, or Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, he was always having some flashbacks. We think a flashback to a, a scene or a moment, like this thing happened, What the psalmist is doing is taking us in a flashback to a frame of mind he had at one point in his life. So he's saying, I remember almost slipping is what he's going to say. And my mind was in this certain place in my heart and what I was thinking about, what I thought of God. And then I came out on the other side and now I can say this. And he's taking us through the journey of what that felt like to where he is now. Does that make sense? So we get to go on the journey of where his headspace was. Uh, and, and in so doing. Remember, this has been sung. This was a song for thousands of years. So the people of God have been singing this almost over themselves of how to like somewhat avoid the psalmist's peril a little bit, but also to remind themselves of how good God is if they too have this kind of mind space. If you're in it, say, I'm in it. Okay, we in it. Well, what we're going to do is we're just going to walk verse by verse through this thing and make sure we understand it. And then I got five observations. Does that sound good? Okay, we're going to do it. So we're going to start in verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, so this is what he's saying. He's saying, God is good. Let me set the record straight. I'm taking y'all back to a time where I didn't think he was good, but let me just up front tell you I think he's good now, but I'm taking you back. So the flashback bubbles are happening into his mind as we speak. Okay. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. He's like I almost lost it, y'all, if I'm honest. I was almost gone. So we should be thinking, what almost made him slip, right? Reverse three. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Translation. I saw people's lives and wicked... He's going to use a lot of generalizations here. He's not saying every person who doesn't follow God has it the way he's about to describe it. But his felt experience of reality was that it would be better to be someone who doesn't even try to follow God because they got life easier. It seems like it's going really well. You got to keep in mind the nation of Israel was the one who Yahweh was their God. Nobody else was them as a nation saying Yahweh is our God. So when he looked at some other nations, when he looked at other situations, he was like, it seems like they got it better than we got it and I got it. And the calculation in his head was like, I don't like that. I'm envious of them. I'm envious of their state of mind. I'm envious of the way they get to live with no thought for Yahweh and his ways or his rules or whatever. Are y'all with that? None of us have ever thought that, right? (laughs) None of us, right? None of us have felt that. I want to draw your attention to verse 3 before we move away from it. He's saying, I was envious when I saw. Hear this, people. What our hearts meditate on or what our eyes are connected to is very important. The envy came from his seeing. The heart is connected to the eye. So what I want you to hear in that is it's, it's not don't ever look at other things. It's when your heart begins to fixate on things and dwell and ruminate and spiral in them. Something There's a lot going on there, but it's usually connected to what you can't look away from. So many sins are that way. It became a glance, then it became a fixation, and sort of this frame of mind. We're about to read he was in. Just he was stuck in it. I, I was, I was, I was arrogant. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw their prosperity. It wasn't just like, oh, nice car. It was like, they balling over there. They got it going on, and I want that, and then it was just a dwelling upon that, and an envy, and a frustration, and why is my life not like that, and and God is holding out on me, and just to put it a little more in our category, maybe you're not always, maybe we're not always envious of the, the person who's like, I don't want to follow God, I don't even care, and has a super easy life, but maybe it's another believer, maybe it's another lifestyle you're seeing, or, or a, a certain person, or a certain decision somebody else made that it worked out for them and you feel like you walked in wisdom and you life smacked you in the face for it and there just becomes this posture of like I'm envious it just seems easier to be in that situation than mine and there's frustration there so continuing on what he's going to do for the next 11 verses is kind of flesh out what he feels like their position is in life He's saying this is how it feels when I look at them, when I look at the wicked, when I look at people who don't even have to think about God. This is how he's going to generalize that. Are you with me? Okay, verse 4. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. I love that. That one hits me. Maybe you remember your life before Jesus. I don't know if you would describe it this way, but that kind of captures how I lived life. It's like I had a necklace of me just on at all times. I had this superpower. I tell people to make conversations about me, to, to make everything gravitate towards me, you know. Um, I just had this ability to, to strut a little bit, which is what the, the, the pastor is going to say here in a minute. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Now, again, not every person who doesn't follow the Lord is full of violence and and oppression. But you've got to keep in mind the time period he was in, that he was just looking at the people who didn't follow God. They just kind of put their will into practice in front of them and seem to have no consequences for it they got what they wanted they did what they wanted they took over countries they expanded their land they captured people they did whatever they wanted to do so he's describing this view of reality as like dude they're just walking through the earth they're just strutting they do whatever they want that might be a more extreme way than you would use to describe people who don't follow God and it might not be violent in the same way but at the end of the day he's communicating they do what they want and there's no consequences and this is the headspace he's in. This is frustrating him. They set their mouths against the heavens, verse 9. Verse 10, therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? It's almost like they're, he's like begging the question, does God even see this? He can't do anything about this. It just seems like they got a free pass to do whatever they want. Verse 12, behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. His perception of reality for those who don't follow God is they got it made. I don't know where that hits you today, if you've ever been in that headspace, but I have. And verse 13 perfectly captures what your heart does next after looking at them. Verse 13, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. What he's saying is, I have wasted my time following God. That's verse 13. All in vain have I said no to what I wanted. I am denying myself and life gets harder. They do whatever they want and life goes easy for them. That don't seem right and he's frustrated. And maybe that resonates with some of you. Maybe some of us are even in that headspace here today. It's going to get worse before it gets better. That's how it works sometimes. So we're going to keep going. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Verse 15. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Verse 15 is really important, and we're going to come back to it later. we got some observations about this. But he's basically saying, I was thinking everything I'm describing to you, but I wasn't running around telling everybody who was in my community that. I wasn't telling all the people of God that. We're going to talk about why that's very important. He was in the headspace, but he wasn't sharing the headspace openly and widely to all his people. Okay? Verse 16, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. I think what he's saying is, I was trying to do the calculus of how that makes sense. How I deny and life gets harder, they don't, life gets easier, and we can all think of exceptions to the rule, right? People who follow the Lord, life is easy. People who don't, life is easy. People who don't, life is hard. People who do, life is easy. I was trying to do the calculus and break it down of why it is that way and help like, and he says, it just got wearisome. I can't make sense of it. It doesn't make sense to me. And then look at verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Okay, so for the next few verses, what he's going to do is he's going to say, this is actual reality, and he's going to shift his attention from that kind of mindset he was in to God. So you all got to stay with me a little bit longer, so stay with me. Verse 18. Truly you... So this is the first time in the psalm he addresses god himself So i don't know if you noticed that he's been talking about god he said back in verse one surely god is good but this is the first time he addresses god directly he says you truly you set them in slippery places you make them fall to ruin how they are destroyed in a moment swept away utterly by terrors like a dream when one awakes so lord when you rouse yourself you despise them as phantoms so I want to address some of the hard elements of this passage real quick, because I think really what the passage is about is the psalmist and God. The topic is the ease that these people seem to have it. Are you with me? About that topic, he says, the facts are it will end. That's facts. We all die. We can't keep our stuff. Those who look like they may have it made one day will not, right? The fact is, and if you struggle sometimes with with verses where it seems like maybe the Lord is harsh or or putting an end to people. Y'all just remember this about the heaven and hell conversations. God isn't sending people to hell as much as he's just allowing people to go where they want to go. Y'all, in the end, you go in some sense where you want to go. If you want the Lord, he will have you. And if you don't, he won't. You get at the end what you wanted during it. That's kind of how it works. Those who God has saved by his grace and drawn to himself want him. And he's like, come on, you know, let's keep it going, baby. But those who didn't want him, why would they want a piece of the pie that they denied their whole life anyways? We frame it in a sending category as if God is the one on trial instead of the fulfillment of our hearts is happening, right? So anytime you get in that headspace with with some of these conversations, just remember, think of it more like he's just allowing them to have what they've always wanted in both cases. So he's, he's shifting the conversation from putting God on trial. This seems wrong. Doesn't seem right how easy they got it. So now he's going to talk to God about where his heart has been this whole time, okay? When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. I call his psalm beast mode. He's saying, God, I was a beast toward you. I was awful. I was questioning you. I was putting you on trial. I had so many questions for you. I thought you were getting it wrong. I thought I was better at calculus than you, and I didn't like it. I was a beast, verse 23. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. One question going through our minds should be, how is this man going so quickly from I was a beast to I'm with you, though? Uh, I told the last service this. Y'all, when my kid is in beast mode, I got three kids. Maverick is five. Eden and Piper are three. When Maverick is just questioning me, I you lied, you promised. He's always doing that. He's always saying, you promise. I'm like, bro, when did I promise that, sir? I said, this is the plan subject to change. Everything I say is subject to change, sir. <laughs> so we're dialoguing, and he is just holding me to the fire, just grilling me, just coming for my life. And then when his heart changes, and he's like, all right, daddy, you're with me. Let's go play basketball. I want to be like, let's just pause real quick, real quick, bring it back, bring it back, bring it back. Let's talk about what just happened. I just want for one second him to understand the levels of disrespect and just be like, do you feel the weight of how little you should receive my love in the next 30 seconds? And then once he's like, yes, daddy, I'm like, and we can go play ball. You know, I just want, I just need a moment for him to understand that he doesn't deserve my love, but I'll give it anyways, right? (laughs) Right? Like the psalmist goes from, questioning God's view of reality. You're getting it wrong. Those who don't follow you should suffer. Those who do follow you should get it good. You're getting it backwards, old man. And then he says, I was in beast mode and I'm with you. He gets to declare his own standing before God and not come like, sir, please have me. We should be asking the question, who gets to do that? Who gets that kind of access to God where they're not just Fearful And Lord, please have me, but say, you're with me. You hold my hand. Verse 24, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you will receive me to glory. Now he's saying, and this is where you're going to take me in the long run. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. This is his, I'm out of calculus mode. I'm not calculating. I just want you. I'll take you anywhere over everything without you anywhere. That's what he's saying. He's gotten to the place where he's like, I want you, don't matter what else, instead of I want all the stuff and you just serve me to get that. Verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who's unfaithful to you. He's like, it's just facts. But for me. It is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. So we're going to walk through some observations. I think at a real baseline level, I think if you're not in Christ here today, you don't follow God. I just hope you hear an invitation, like and hear through the warning, like the the this life as we know it is kind of like like a dream. It'll be over in a hurry. I, I pray you hear the inviting voice of God to live life with Him. Uh, and if we're not, or if we are followers of God, we got some things to learn from this passage. Are y'all ready? I got five observations. Number one, left to ourselves, we are bad interpreters of reality. Left to ourselves, we are bad interpreters of reality. We're really bad at calculus. We're bad at how life should go and who should, and, and, and all the stuff that he was trying to do. What we naturally do is we go off of our experience and how it seems and feels. And basically what that means is, we look for ease and comfort. We think those who have it made are those who have it easiest. That's what we think. That's our default. We just we just think the North Star is comfort and ease, and God, you serve that. And we just, we're so discombobulated. We forget kind of what is the point of life. We just forget at a basic level, what are we doing here? What is the point? If you remember in the garden, uh, when the serpent starts whispering to Eve, she's in paradise with all kinds of trees around her. And she could do everything but the one thing. And this serpent convinces her, God is holding out on you. And she's like, you know what? You're right. I need that apple. Let's do it. You know? Give me a bite. Give husband a bite. And we keep moving. That's, that's sin. It's, it's God is holding out on me. So we begin to think the point of life is to get God's hand and not his heart. To get his stuff and not who he is. Our default The the place we go, our interpretation of reality is give me the stuff, you can keep God. Just give me his stuff. So what is the point of life, friends? Why are we planted a church in Norfolk, Virginia, okay? The point of life is to live life with God. That's the point of life, is to live life with him. The God who made us in his image, gave us all kind of giftings and passions, all this stuff, he wants to live life with you every second of every day into eternity guess what we're gonna do when we get there we're gonna have jobs we're gonna eat food we're gonna have friends you know we're gonna worship All, all these things and God wants to live life with us and Jesus dying on the cross is is the way God is communicating I want to live with you Emmanuel God with us he is the good life lived out in front of us he didn't collect a bunch of goods. He had a good time. He could eat and drink and get called some names and have, he had so much fun. People were calling him some names, okay? Jesus knew how to have some fun, but he didn't live life like the point was to stack it up. He lived life like differently than that, you know? He didn't live life like comfort and ease were his goal. He lived life to enact God's will on earth as it is in heaven. You know, one thing this psalm is doing is it's begging the question, do you want heaven or earth? And I think in our minds we can begin to pit those against each other. And what we see in Jesus is he lived heaven on earth, right? That's what he did. He, he, it's God's will being said yes to. That's the good life. Is what God wants is what you want. When there's no more like, yeah, but I don't want that. It's when your first thoughts are his thoughts. When your first instincts are what he wants. When your impulses are him, his impulses. When I poke you, you're thinking like God, you know? That's the good life, and it's going to be a struggle all the way until we get to eternity where we're finally, like, get this old self removed, but that's what it's going to be. Okay, that's point number one. Left to ourselves, bad interpreters of reality. Number two, there is a drift in all of us. There is a drift in all of us, whether you are a follower of Jesus or not here today, naturally we drift towards give me God's world and get God out of it. I want his world without him. That's, that's the drift of the human heart. I think about the prodigal son story. Both brothers wanted to relate to God's world without God in it. They wanted his world, his money, his stuff, his house without his presence. That is the essence of sin. And even if you've been following Jesus, that's your natural drift apart from God's word, God's spirit, God's people. And some of what, again, this is the Bible, like the the psalmist wrote this. So what that should do to your mind is hear you be freed up to like when you drift that way, it's not be shamed and you better clean it up on your own and then come back. It's how you think you're going to get out of it except for God's word, God's people, God's spirit. We're so good at, listen, we're so good at being in beast mode and thinking God is demanding we get ourselves out of it. And then we stay in it because how are you going to get out of it on your own, right? God isn't after like saving you one time by the blood of Jesus and then saying, now it's all on you. I made you beauty. You were a beast. I made you beauty. Now you better stay beautiful. God knows our hearts. He knows we're dust, Psalm 103 tells us. We're just so weak. You are wicked, risen church. Like if you are if you are a human being, you have some wickedness in you, but you're also just weak. It means like even on your best day, when you know you're being wicked, you can't undo the drift somewhat does that make sense you need anchors you need help you need God's word you need God's spirit you need God's people so don't be surprised when the the beast mode hits God is inviting you to him in it and not demanding that you get yourself out of it okay observation number three there are warning signs that you're slipping There are warning signs that you're slipping. Remember, he could say now, look it back, I almost slipped, okay? There are warning signs. And I think the main one that the passage is implying and putting into words for us comes to us in verse um, 13. When he says, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. You can sense him like looking at God like, I have wasted my time with this. When I look at how easy others have it, when I look at, man, they get to sin and not even have a conscience, convict them. Because do you remember before you were in Christ, somebody where you sinned and didn't even like, I remember sinning and not being like, oh no, gotta get right with the Lord. I was like, no, I love what I'm doing. Like, you know, like we forget, like, people who don't follow the Lord aren't like, oh man, how do I get cleaned up? They're like, we good. You know what I mean? Like, I'm loving my life. Like we love our sin, right? Um, and so I think like That's kind of what the psalmist is saying. In vain, like I'm in a position where because of my relationship to you, I know I'm supposed to, I got these rules, but in vain have I operated this way. I would rather not know about you. I'd rather be like them and just get the hall pass and forget that I'm doing it and not even feel conviction over it. I just want to be, just let me go almost. That's kind of what he's saying. All in vain. And there's an anger there. So the warning sign is when you find yourself angry, and feeling wronged, resentment, that God is giving to others what you deserve because you've cleaned your hands, you've said no to certain sins, you've done certain things a certain way, you walked in wisdom here instead of taking an unwise, probably unbiblical risk, and then life got harder. So and so does it, life gets easier. I operate this way, life gets harder. This is not fair and in vain am I wasting my time with you. That is a warning sign that you slip in because it means your view of reality is just so backwards and based on what you get out of things and you've created a transactional relationship with God where, hey dude, here's what I do. I say no to things, I do, I do it your way and then you give me the life I want. That's a transactional relationship with God and when we're finding ourselves angry with Him and resentful and saying all in vain, hear me say that everyone does that because they're a human being, but when we're doing that, it means we could be slipping. There's a fire in our hearts. And what we're so good at, y'all, is we do this right here. We say things like, oh, that gossip I'm doing about that friend because I'm actually envious of them and angry at God. Oh, I just having a bad day or I don't like her. Or, you know, like we, we try to play it off or like, I, you know, that guy just annoyed me or I'm having a rough day or whatever it is. But really what's going on is like you have a beast heart, right? We, 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 we're in beast mode and we need God to change the engine of our heart. Our, our heart's on fire a little bit And we need him to put the fire out and help us not get out a fan. I like to think of it like this. If this building was on fire, the dumb thing to do would be to get a giant fan and just blow all the smoke away. No problem here, guys. We got the smoke is long gone. Send it it out to the water. You need to put the fire out. But so many of us, when the presence of like this anger towards God and resentment, we handle the side effects of the problem and not the problem. Does that make sense? What the book of Psalms is trying to do is say, let's handle the problem. Let's go to God with the problem. Let's put our foot in the ground. That's the fourth observation. When we are slipping, we have to put our foot in the ground. When we are slipping, we have to put our foot in the ground. The psalmist did that by going to the sanctuary in verse 17. Until I went to the sanctuary. That's kind of the shift in the passage. Then it all became clear to me. Then I saw my beast mode, all that. Made the decision to go to the sanctuary. I'm calling that putting your foot in the ground. Hopefully, you're familiar with that expression. Again, with my kids, when they drive me nuts, I'm patient. I'm patient. I'm patient. They said that. Okay, get your stuff. Get in the car. Where are my keys? We're out. Get them. Let's go. Uh, like there's, I got the, I, there's a line, right? Like there there, that's it right there. So I don't know what it is for you. I don't know if it's a whining, gossiping spirit, anger, resentment. There's gotta come some moment where you put your foot in the ground, you go to the sanctuary, so to speak, where you're like, I'm going to meet with God, I'm going to deal with this. This is unhealthy. It's reached a level, I am God's child, this is not who I am, and I might be doing the calculus, and I know I'm wrong, but I got to go to him lying in the sand. Where's my stuff? I'm going to the sanctuary, let's do it. Does that make sense? And here's what's good about God. When you look back on moments the way the psalmist is doing here, you could say things like, God, you kept me from slipping, but in the moment what you did was draw your, it felt like you were drawing the line and saying, I can't go any further. Does that make sense? So it feels like you're fighting and clawing to draw a line, and I don't even understand it yet, but I'm not going any further the direction I'm going. I'm going to stop whining and looking at and meditating on and ruminating about how easy others have got it or whatever or how God is wronging me. I'm going to stop. There's a line here, and you use God's word and God's spirit, God's people to help you draw that line, and then you turn, and somehow the Lord has this amazing way of getting you out of it and seeing whom have I in heaven but you and thank you God thank you thank you and it almost feels like he just pulled you out of something that almost killed you but in the moment you drew the line does that make sense what it feels like is I got to take a stand here against myself against my sin against the enemy and I need help God's word God's people God's spirit and when you look back you'll be like the Lord saved me because I was done for that's how he can say, I nearly slipped. My foot had almost slipped. I had stumbled. I was fallen. It's like the Lord grabbed me. But in the moment, you got to draw the line. That's repentance, y'all. That's putting your foot in the ground and turning. And let me say this about how other people should and should not be involved in this process. Look at verse 15. He says, if I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Let me see if I can translate that for you. He was in this bad headspace that people who don't follow God have it made, and I'm being wronged by God that they have an easier life than me. He was in that headspace all the time. What he wasn't doing is going amongst the people of God and getting them to question God's goodness based off the same calculus he was using. Does that make sense? He wasn't going, He wasn't inviting people to coffee and just unhealthily venting on them and getting them to start thinking like him. Does that make sense? One thing sometimes in the Christian communities we could do, is we can conflate confession with venting. And I think what, what we should do is, if I think about it like a process, it's like go to God, draw the foot, draw, draw the, draw, put, put your foot on the ground, draw the line. Y'all are with me. Math teacher, not English teacher. Words, words, words. <laughs> so you're, you're, you're going to God, you're turning, and God's people can be involved in that, and God's word is involved in that, God's spirit's involved in that, and you're turning, and other people at some level will be involved and need to help you but there's a fine line between that, and I'm going this direction, complaining, whining, all that stuff, and just bringing you with me. He said, if I had gone about your people, I would have betrayed your generation. I would have, I would have made you look bad. I would have drugged your name through the dirt. There's a fine line between, like, I'm struggling to trust God, and let me give you all the reasons you shouldn't be trusting God. Are you seeing that? So, here's what I would say. Biblical accountability is helping people become who they want to become but need help becoming. It's not trying to make somebody something they're not. So, like, the way I think about it is like this. Okay, there's an episode of SpongeBob SquarePants a lot of time ago, and it just nailed it. Okay, so here it is. Mr. Krabs wanted to go on a date with Mrs. Puff, and he would buy her anything. He'd spend, like, millions of dollars on her. And he goes to SpongeBob and he says, Listen, when she comes, I'm going to want to, I'm, I'm going to want to buy her stuff, don't let me, okay? And Spongebob was like, I got you. Then she comes up, he's like, give me a million dollars, and he did it every time, just kept giving it to him. He's like, and then he would blame Spongebob that all his money was gone, and the, the point of the episode was like, whose fault is it, Spongebob or Mr. Krabs? But this is kind of the point. When I come back, I'm going to be a different person. I need you to help me be the person I am right now, Okay? So somewhat with biblical community and accountability, you're communicating to people, this is who I am in Christ. I need your help to be that. I need God's word to be that. Help me draw a line sometimes, and this is what that's going to look like, and this is our relationship. And you've got the green light to do this, to, to help me become that. You're not judging me if you tell me to be who I'm telling you to be right now. That's another thing we do. Well, I can't tell them that. That would be judgment. <laughs> it's like... It's judgment if you're, like, condemning who they are and saying they should be something else. It's accountability and loving help if you're helping them become who they want to be and they're saying they need you to be a part of that. Does that make sense? But in no situation could we say, well, I didn't have the help I needed, so it's not my fault. <laughs> Let's go sin. You know, like, don't work like that either. Are y'all, are y'all tracking with me? The point is he's saying, I can't walk around and trash God to the whole community and just kind of open air laundry it's good to be real it's good to be transparent but let's not skip the part where we go to the sanctuary and just start running around to God's people I think we should be doing a lot of stuff with God a lot of stuff with his word a lot of tears a lot of sweat blood sweat tears so to speak and yes God's people are a part of that but we got to be careful where that line is between I'm just venting and I've done no work with God but I know how to fake it you know what I mean I've done that don't know about you okay Number five, this is the last observation. God is really good and really patient. Isn't he? Many of us, or naturally, I think what we carry in our heads is that God chooses the good people, right? Or he saves bad people and makes them good, and now it's on us to just stay good. But the amazing thing, the more, I remember, I I became a believer about 13 years ago now, and I remember like, the amazing news isn't just that God saves you once, it's that you get the kind of power and grace to get out of beast mode over and over and over and over. Like, I, I hope we understand, like, beast mode is not um, something you're gonna struggle with once. Psalm 73 might not be a one-time thing, it might not be a season thing, it might be like daily Satan whispers to your heart, God is holding out on you, you are being wronged and they got it made. And you gotta go to this kind of process where you're like, God, help me, God, help me, God, help me. And then you get to where you could say, Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth I desire besides you. You could get there and you could praise the Lord on the other side. And the amazing thing is, God is never demanding payment back in. That's what's amazing about the Psalm. It's amazing that he can talk to God like God owes his uh, uh, intimate presence to him free of charge, even though he just acted like a beast for all them verses and questioned his running of the universe and doing him wrong and and questioning his goodness. And the second he wants back in, he's talking to God like they're best friends again. Is that not amazing to you? That's the goodness of grace. The more we can get anchored in, if you are in Christ, it's because of his payment, his blood, his perfection, Not because of your ability to conjure the change. You don't get you out of beast mode and into beauty mode. Jesus does. The first time when you're saved, you're saying, I'm in, you're my Lord, you're my King. But day by day, hour by hour, if this needs to be. And don't even be shamed if that happens. Just keep going to him. He is more patient, more kind, more good, more loving than I think we have a category for there are a lot of songs where all they do is praise God. There's a lot more where I'm like these people are struggling and my man is struggling, but I understand him. Like I get it. There just comes this moment where you're like God, I'm in with you and you are good and I don't understand it and I'm done playing calculus. I'm done. I'm done judging your ability to run the universe in my life. I have the good life because I have you. That's it one of my favorite stories is in uh, John chapter 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000, Okay, he's got a nice crowd people are just loving him, throwing him some love, and he just starts saying hard stuff, and just a few people are trickling off, and they're like, okay, interesting sermon tactic, you got the crowds this was your moment, you're kind of blowing it and he just keeps drawing them, and he keeps saying harder stuff then Peter's like, hey Jesus man uh, this stuff's kind of hard you're saying, for them not for me, for them, Uh, you know Classic Peter's like, they're struggling with this, uh, Lord, what uh, what are your thoughts? And Jesus is like, some more disciples walk away, and he says, you going to leave too? He's basically like, what you going to do? And Peter says back something that I just think is so good. He just says, where else am I going to go? You have the words of eternal life. There's this sense in which there comes this moment, happens one time when you're saved, and it happens over and over and over, where you just kind of look at the Lord and you say, as a, an artist took that moment in his, his way of saying it, it was like, you got it. That's what he said, Lord, you just got it. You got it. Where else would I go? You got it. There comes this moment where you just look at the Lord and you say, you got it, man. You just got it. I'm done judging your ability to be you. You got it. You are better king to me than I am to myself. I'll let you run the show. You got it. And you are so gracious and so patient and so good, and I'm in, and you got it. I just want you to hear me say, Risen Church, that might happen every day in your life. I don't know. It's okay. Like, keep going to him. He's got it, and he's got you, and let's go. And here's the amazing thing. When I think about what I'm dreaming for your church and for Port City in Norfolk, is y'all. When I look at the community around us, when they think of a Christian, they think you're the beauties. They think y'all are the good people right the lord chose y'all cuz y'all y'all the beauties or y'all were the beast but now you're beauties they don't have a category for your beauty and beast he's the beauty and he's keeping you and he's bringing you and he's drawing you mainly because the way we present Christ to our surrounding community is we needed him once and now we just get around they think we're raising our hands because we're what these songs declare us you know like we're the person we're celebrating because we need him now <laughs> Please don't present to Virginia Beach a Jesus you once needed, but a Jesus you are needing. And part of that is when you're in beast mode, let them see it. I'm struggling. I'm doing the calculus. I think they got it made. I'm mad at God. Like, help. I need help. And then when God brings you out and you could say he's better than anything, just tell them. Just tell them. Bring them on your journey and people will get saved. Nobody wants to hear from somebody they think has it put together about the person who could put them together. They want to see a person standing around the fire when they're freezing saying, it's warm over here, come on. They're seeing you participate in something they want, not tell them about something. It don't look like you're doing. It just looks like you were born, you know, either your mama went to church or you just, Jesus is just your thing, you know. But if they see you need him, that's different. That's a little different. That's compelling to me. So I just want you all to hear, what might God do in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your community, if the version of Jesus of Nazareth you were presenting was the one that you could talk to this way after you were questioning his goodness to turn and say, nevertheless, I'm with you. You are good, and I love you, and I need you. And then you can look at your friends, as it says in uh, verse 28 here. But for me, it is good to be near God. You can say, man, listen, I know a lot of stuff in life don't make sense. For me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. I just want to tell you about his works. Can we go get some coffee? You just tell them. That's compelling. And I think, I think it can change the city. I really do. It's been good to be here with you. As one who is in beast mode often, I just want to empower you. Like, go to the Lord when you're in beast mode. Not if. When you're in beast mode, go to the Lord. Anchor yourself to his word, his community, and his spirit. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we love you. God, thank you. Thank you, Lord, that by the end of a psalm where we are questioning you, we're envious of others, arrogant. We don't understand life, Lord. But by the end of all of that, after questioning you, we could say, whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth I desire besides you. And there's no payment you require for the selfishness we were in. Well, there is, Lord, but we could never pay it. We could never pay it. Jesus, you have. Thank you for that. Lord, I pray for my friends who don't know you in this room. Father, I just pray they'd be invited. They'd feel invited. to Hear the invitation from you, Lord, to live life with them. They, that you want to live life with them. That um, God, yeah. In a lot of ways, whether we live 60, 70, 80, 90 years, like it's this is a dream, and it will end. We were not made. We were not made just to collect collect things and just have ease. We were made to live with you. Gotta pray that would just be sweet, good news to them. And I pray for my friends who are following you but find themselves in beast mode often, that we would be empowered to come to you. God, would you bless this community uh, and their accountability with one another, and would your word and your spirit anchor them, and would you change this city of Virginia Beach because we need you, not because we once did, but because we do right now. We love you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.